Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Christ to be our Savior. Lord, where would we be? We would be undone forever if you had not intervened on our behalf. There's nothing we could have done to make up for our sin against you. There's nothing we could have paid to make up for that. And you provided Christ as the perfect solution to our ruin and sin. And so thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that we have forgiveness and eternal life, righteousness, everything in him. He is our all in all. And I pray for anyone who is here who doesn't know him as their Lord and their Savior and their all, that you would open their blind eyes to see that they need him, that you'd change their stony heart to embrace him by faith, that they too might join in the joy of celebrating that you sent Christ that first Christmas. So Lord, as we open your word together now, I pray that you would um, open the eyes of our understanding to better grasp this great mystery of Christ coming to earth and what he accomplished for us as our Savior. Lord, I pray that um, we not just understand better, but that our hearts uh, would be um, moved more than maybe we have been before. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you've heard the song that says, And man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. It's true that Jesus changes everything, but does his birth by itself bring about the dramatic change we sang about earlier when we sang, God and sinners reconciled, brought back together after there had been a separation or a break in the relationship? Does just the birth of Jesus accomplish that? As John Piper writes, Christ was born to die. Good Friday is the purpose of Christmas. This is what most people today need to hear about the meaning of Christmas. Our text for today focuses on one of the reasons why Jesus came to die. And a clearer understanding of the significance of his death will give us a deeper thankfulness for his birth. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. Romans chapter 3. Last Sunday, we asked the all-important question, how can unrighteous people like us ever hope to be accepted by a perfectly righteous God? And the only solution is that God, who requires a perfect righteousness from us that we do not have and cannot produce, has provided a perfect righteousness for us through faith in Christ. And so we looked at verse 24 of chapter 3 last week, this amazing sentence, being justified 
as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. To be justified means to be fully acquitted of our unrighteousness and to be fully accepted as righteous in God's sight. And God has provided all this as a free gift by his undeserved, unexpected grace through the redemption of Christ, his death setting us free from the debt and power and condemnation of sin. So God treated Jesus as though he had lived our unrighteous life, and he now treats us as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. Our sins were credited to his account. His righteousness is credited to our account. And it all almost sounds too good to be true. But do you see the potential problem? It's John Stott. If God justifies sinners freely by his grace, on what ground does he do so? How is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? So here's a couple examples. A few years ago, there was a big reaction when a departing president issued some last-minute pardons to drug dealers, fugitives, and various other criminals, which is the signature of his pen, guilty convicts, including a death row inmate, were set free. And that seems scandalous to many people. It's just not right that lawbreakers are freed from the consequences of their crimes. They deserve to be punished. Where's the justice in that? Or think of David. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he has her husband Uriah killed to cover up his immorality. God sends Nathan to confront him, and he says, I have sinned. And Nathan assures him, the Lord has forgiven you. Just like that. How does he get off so easy? How is it right for God to forgive him instead of punishing him? It seems to call God's righteousness into question, especially when you look at verses like Deuteronomy 25.1, where God says, judges must justify the righteous and condemn the guilty, or Exodus 23.7, where God says, I will not acquit the guilty, or Proverbs 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So think about that. Here, in Romans 4, 5, we won't get that till January, but turn over to 4, 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So God just said, it's an abomination to justify the ungodly. And here he's justifying the ungodly, the unrighteous. 
people like us are declared right in his sight. So there's the problem. It looks like God is unrighteous in justifying unrighteous people. It seems like God has compromised his righteousness and he doesn't really care about sin and evil and it's just letting it go as if it doesn't matter. Which brings us to the resolution of this problem in verses 25 and 26. So continuing the sentence, referring to Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, like David's or others. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the resolution to this problem of God's righteousness being called into question by Declaring righteous people who are unrighteous is propitiation, which is just a big word meaning a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. Remember, God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting opposition to all that is evil. It is his holy hatred of sin and his righteous commitment to punish it appropriately. And so in Habakkuk chapter 1, Verse 13, it says, your eyes, speaking of God, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. So that's how holy God is. He can't even look at sin. He can't even look at evil. He must judge it. Over 100 years ago, Robert Dale wrote, Quote, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we don't believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. And John Piper writes, quote, the, about the age-old difference between the way natural man sees the problem of relating to God and the way the Bible sees the problem of relating to God. Man-centered humans are amazed, just amazed, that God should withhold life and joy from them. The God-centered Bible is amazed just staggered that God would withhold judgment from sinners. So you see how different we are? We just assume, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? I'm so special. I'm such a great person. And the Bible's saying, if you know how God sees you as a sinner, you should be amazed that God didn't strike you down in judgment. So we're, we're, our perspective is just off. We're just wired to think, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think and not see ourselves the way God sees us before Christ intervenes. And so there's a problem. We saw it in Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When we get to chapter 5, 
verse 9. It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So God's wrath is a sobering reality. We all deserve to experience his holy wrath against us for our sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has provided a perfectly righteous way for us to be acquitted and accepted by him through the work of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to a couple of more verses. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14, first part, and then verse 17. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there's the incarnation. That's what we're celebrating. Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a human being like us. Why did he do that? The purpose of his becoming like us was to become a high priest, a mediator between God and man. And the purpose of him becoming a high priest was to make propitiation for our sins, to offer himself as a sacrifice that would satisfy God's holy wrath. Or go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 9 and 10, and then we'll drop down to 14. First John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, or to us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 14, we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. So there's the Christmas story right there. It sounds just like John 3:16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But look at the reason for God sending Jesus. We're told God's love is what took the initiative. It wasn't in response to something we did or could do. It wasn't because God was responding to us, loving him. We didn't love him. It wasn't about that. He loved us, and he sends Jesus into the world that first Christmas to rescue us from wrath by being a propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is part of the Christmas story, which is I think in God's providence, so interesting that the timing of finishing up Romans 3 this morning and singing Christmas songs and these texts from Hebrews 2 and 1 John 4 are just so perfect. Don't underestimate 
what Jesus was doing by coming and living and dying. Don't forget that part of it. So God demonstrates both his great love and his perfect righteousness in sending Christ at Christmas to bring about Good Friday and Easter to remove wrath against us. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just experiencing horrific physical suffering, as awful as that was. He was bearing and absorbing and removing the wrath of God. That should have been poured out on us. That should have been us. He was forsaken by God on the cross so that we would not be forsaken by God forever. We deserve to be under God's eternal curse. But Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And right before that, he said, if you don't keep 100% of the law 100% of the time, you're under God's curse. That's the curse that's resting on us. And 13 says, Christ took that on himself. So it's not on us anymore. He bore it away. God would have been perfectly just to send all of us to hell forever. He would have upheld his righteousness if he did that. He didn't have to rescue any of us. We are not entitled to this rescue we're singing about. But in his great love and his free grace, he provided a way to both be just, righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in sending Jesus, God's righteousness is publicly demonstrated. His justice is fully vindicated. Guilty sinners are rescued from wrath forever, all because Jesus paid the penalty in full when he shed his blood for sinners like us. So here's some more verses about Jesus doing that for us. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. First Thessalonians 1, maybe we should start at 9. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He could have just stopped at, look for Jesus, but he wants to remind us, don't forget, Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. Chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2 1 John chapter 2, after saying we're kidding ourselves and making God a liar if we don't think we have sin. And then chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
And this rescue from wrath and this restoration to God is all offered as a free gift and received by faith. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then expect this of him. It has nothing to do with what we can do for God. It has everything to do with what God has done for us through Christ. And so we just want to pause and just ask, do you know if God accepts you now and will welcome you into his heaven later? And if you're not sure you have that settled, acknowledge, first of all, I don't deserve to have a relationship with God. I have turned away from him in so many ways. Isaiah 53, 6, we looked at it in Sunday school. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We turn away from God to do our own thing. And we've said, no, thank you to God. We don't want a relationship with you. And so that's where we start. All of us start there, not having a relationship. Second, acknowledge I can't do anything to make things right with God. And we'll see more in the next few verses about that. But there's nothing we can offer God that would offset our sin and restore peace between us. And so I trust completely and only in Jesus Christ as God's remedy for my ruin and sin. I want to take you to John 3.36. Not many verses after John 3.16. <laughs> Same chapter, the last verse of the chapter, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has, right now, eternal life. A relationship with God that starts now and continues forever in heaven. You can have that right now. Believe in the Son. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So there are only two alternatives. Jesus won't let us stay neutral. We can't just stay on the fence. We either believe in Jesus, trust that his death on the cross is the only way my sin could be forgiven and that God's wrath could be removed and that he rose from the dead to show God accepted his work on my behalf so that I could be justified and acquitted and accepted by God forever. Or disregard what Jesus says, don't believe him. And Jesus says, if that's what you choose to do, the wrath of God remains on you now and will remain on you forever. That's sobering. That's scary. But Jesus loves us enough to tell us that's the choices. Believe, have eternal life, free. Don't believe. Be under God's wrath forever. And so there's nothing more important than getting your relationship with God settled. Well, let's finish the chapter, verses 27 through 31, back in Romans 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, declared right in God's sight, by faith, apart from works of the law. 
or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul has two main points he wants us to grasp in light of what he's been telling us about how God acquits and accepts guilty sinners like us because of Christ's death, redeeming us from sin and rescuing us from wrath. And the first is all human merit is excluded. And that should have already been clear from verse 24. We are justified freely as a gift by God's undeserved and unexpected grace. But just to rule out any attempts on our part to try to earn it or to try to contribute to it in some way, Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from any works of the law. So being declared right in God's sight is not based on trying to keep the law, whether that's the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or the Sermon on the Mount, any attempts of, I'm going to obey, I'm going to do the right thing, or do religious duties, go to church, have ritual, ritual, rituals, anything else we might try to offer to be worthy enough to be accepted by God. Paul says that's all done. There's no room for it. And you'll say it again in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, trying to earn it, you're trying to achieve it on your own, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Or go to chapter 9 of Romans. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. So they missed the boat. It's good to want righteousness, but it has to be pursued the right way, by faith. If you try to work for it or earn it, or earn it in some way, you lose it. And one more, Romans eleven six. Romans eleven six says, if it is by grace, and it is, It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace, by definition, is free. Grace, by definition, is unearned, undeserved, unrepayable. And so as soon as we try to throw our works in there to add to it, it cancels out grace. It's now on our performance. So first, all human merit is excluded. And second, all human boasting is excluded. Look at 327. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. To glory or to boast means to take pride in or take joy in or exalt in. 
The basic idea is to call attention to someone, usually ourselves, and wanting others to be impressed. In a phrase that goes all the way back at least to the 1600s, it's making much of someone or something. And Paul wants to silence all human boasting. He doesn't just say boasting is minimized, so there isn't much of it. He says all boasting is completely eliminated, so there's no room for it at all. As one writer said, it is kicked out of the room and the door locked. There's absolutely no place for human Boasting, bragging, glorying, look at me, look what I did. I was smart enough. I was good enough. I cooperated enough. It was something somehow about me. Paul says there's no room for that. Here's a quote from William Plumer in the 1800s. It is true this doctrine is very humbling to the sinner. He has no part in devising this righteousness nor in providing it nor in manifesting it, nor can he add anything to it, nor can he, without humbling his heart, avail himself of it. All he can do is put on this blessed robe, wear it, and adore the grace that provided it. And if you're not sure what he means by that blessed robe, it comes from Isaiah 61.10. Let me read it for you. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. So what do I have? All my righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6, filthy rags, unacceptable to God. But I've been wrapped in this robe of righteousness, the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness. So when God sees me, he sees the righteousness of Christ himself. William Plumer saying, the only thing I can do is take that robe, wear it, and adore, I would say, adore the one who gave it to me. Not just the grace that provided it, adore the one who provided that righteousness for me. Here are a few more texts. First Corinthians four seven. Who regards you as superior? King James says, who causes you to differ? What makes you different than anybody else? What do you have? that you did not receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So Paul gives us a little quiz. Can you think of one single thing that you and I have that is not a gift from God? Anybody think of something? You can't. We can't. Everything we have is a gift of God, including our justification, including our righteousness, including eternal life, including everything. 
And so Paul says, why would you try to take credit for anything as if we made it happen? It was a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. All my sparkies know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he could have just stopped there, but he tells us the reason it's by grace through faith and not of yourselves and your own doing. It's to rule out anybody boasting. So salvation is not our own doing. Grace is not our own doing. Faith is not ultimately our own doing. Yes, we believe, but it's a gift. These are all gifts from God. It's all about what he has done for us, not that what we have done for him. And therefore, we have no reason to boast or brag as if we made some kind of contribution to our rescue. One more, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why does he do it? So that... No man may boast before God, but by his doing, God does this. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, who became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here's another so that, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God's goal in designing salvation the way he does, designing his complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin is to take away all human pride and all human boasting and that all the glory would be given where it is due, namely to God alone, that all would boast in the Lord. Or as Psalm 115.1 puts it, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for providing salvation in the first place through Jesus. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to see what we would not have seen on our own. That we could not earn this or accomplish this in our own efforts. It was a sheer gift of your grace to send Jesus, that he would die on a cross to redeem us, to ransom us, to take away wrath, to forgive our sins, to purchase all the blessings of the new covenant. Lord, you did it all 
without any help from us. And so to you alone be the glory forever. I pray again for anyone who has not received this gift of Christ, this gift of salvation. Lord, that even today, even during this Christmas season, they would see that there's nothing they need more than to have their relationship with you made right. They would turn away from any false hopes of having that happen in their own. They would put their trust in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.